Nowadays, we have a significant interest uh, to the topic of a cleaner energy. But uh, since uh, over your journey, you have a, you had an access to the whole statistic and data about what we have in terms of a clean energy and energy uh, in general challenge. How would you say, um, in terms of uh, emerging countries, in, in terms of uh, some population beyond U.S. Our current challenge is an access to clean energy or in some cases even uh, access to any kind of energy at all. Sure. So in um, Asia, Africa and parts of Latin America, people do have access to energy, but it's very dirty and not great for people's health. So cooking is a prime example of that. Um, people don't have access to modern fuels for cooking, so they typically cut down trees, use firewood or other forms of biomass to cook over an open fire. And uh, this is incredibly dangerous for their health because they're smoking, uh, um, inhaling smoke particulate matter, uh, which is attributed to lung, lung disease and lung cancer. Um, and so basically you have, you know, about 2 billion people who are, whose lifestyle is equivalent to someone who smokes like four, four to six packs of cigarettes a day just from cooking, which is insane. Um, so that's a really dire example of how you can have ac access to energy, but it not be clean and it be devastating for your life. At some point of your career, uh, you worked at Facebook, Facebook Connectivity Lab. Uh, could you tell us uh, about this organization and this project driven by Facebook? How exactly it works, how it's connected to clean energy, clean energy access, and what your role uh, were, uh, was it with period? Sure. Um, I took a consulting assignment for Facebook, who was at the time looking at how to bring internet to the world. So um, through this, they realized that not having access to electricity is going to be a limiting factor for delivering Wi-Fi or other forms of connectivity to populations. So they wanted to, to research and understand better the off-grid landscape and potentials for clean energy to power um, internet infrastructure in other parts of the world. So so that was my prime kind of role at, at the company. You also work with the United Nations Foundation. Over uh, the whole journey, how would you say um, is United Nations uh, is really uh, close to um, a picture of reality? I mean, uh, we always say that big organization full of bureaucracy and sometimes there is a gap in terms of uh, how we close to particular situation to real citizens. So based on your experience, if you could compare Facebook, your own incubator and United Nations, how exactly it works and how is efficient? 
Sure. So, I mean, I think the UN has an incredibly important role to play in all of this, which is basically the role of a global convener. Uh, there's no organization that's more internationally connected than the UN. Um, and in terms of driving attention to important issues, the UN, UN involvement is crucial, which is why at the United Nations Foundation, when I was there, we were really involved in elevating the matter of lack of electricity and clean energy to the UN level so that it can, this organization can drive the amount of momentum and financing needed to combat this problem. And so that, that work um, was a mix of high level and a mix of grassroots um, because uh, there are some very powerful voices on the ground in, in the form of nonprofit organizations, civil society leaders, you know, private enterprise, people who are not part of the system but still have opinions and are trying to set trends for their industry. So... Um, when I was there, we were basically bringing this, these communities together to create um, ro roadmaps as to how a country like Ghana, for example, could bring clean energy to its population by 2030, which was the goal. So, um, so creating these roadmaps then led to um, influencing people in the UN system as to why this is so important. And eventually the goal of this movement was to create a sustainable development goal around universal energy access, which did occur, became goal number seven. But that took a lot of um, advocacy, a lot of advocacy to make that happen. So it's not like some a bunch of people in a room just sat around and decided, okay, what are the 17 sustainable development goals? It required a movement of people around the world advocating for separate issues so that those issues would become goals. And in the past, um, energy has been neglected. Um, environment has been championed, but environment is very broad, right? You need to segment. And so uh, if you say, you know, if you have a conservation goal, that's not enough to encapsulate all the different areas, which, which the goals did eventually break up. You have a goal in oceans and you know, protection of oceans, you have a separate goal in conservation, and now you have a goal in energy. And that's what's needed, because you need to drive, you have to do these pillars to drive financing and, um, and, uh, uh, and, and political advocacy to get these um, goals uh, realized. One of your uh, key projects in your life is the EM Venture Incubator in Uganda. Um, you, uh, this project has incubated over 70 enterprises in clean energy, as far as I know. Um, I would love to ask you, how did you jump from the U.S. Uh, to Uganda? Is the first question. And second question, how did you come up with the whole idea of EN Venture? How you connected your journey with this particular region and the problems of this region? Sure. So I actually lived in Uganda after grad school. Um, so in 2011-12, I was working for on a carbon financing uh, program that was um, using carbon financing to support the cookstove industry in Uganda. And one of the key challenges that cookstove manufacturers had was distribution, um, having enough volume wholesale of their products in villages there really weren't any distributors who were capable of doing that kind of wholesale volume, which meant that manufacturers had to be vertically integrated. They had to develop the products, 
and distribute them. And, and you can imagine how expensive and hard it is for a company to be good at both. So this became a really key problem that I noticed in the clean energy sector was that all these companies had to be experts at manufacturing and distribution. And it's better to segment, to have manufacturers be manufacturers and then have distributors come in and just focus on the distribution problem. And so that problem bothered me. And then when I was back at United Nations Foundation, I decided to run this pilot on the side with um, some organizations I knew in Uganda who were inter interested in distributing solar products, cook stove products. And so um, I basically lent them money to purchase wholesale volumes of solar and cook stove products to become resellers in their communities. And the pilots were a total success. And so what I realized is this was missing capital for distribution and, and uh, an ecosystem of support because distribution is not easy. It's not like you can just become one overnight and you know scale. It requires a lot of um, resources, support, mentorship, and um, of course uh, money. So bringing that all together is what led to the Inventure Incubator, which is bringing in the ecosystem to support distributors to sell clean energy in the in the rural areas that we call the last mile. So. Um, after my Facebook consulting um, role finished, I decided to focus on adventure full time. And that's how we, we started with uh, about seven companies that had gone through our pilot. And then, um, and then now we have scaled up to over 100 now that we've invested in and supported. And it's been wonderful to see, you know, these entrepreneurs who you know, we were their first money in. Uh, they're not eligible for bank loans. They don't have collateral. They um, uh, they have maybe never taken a loan before. But we, through our, um, I would say, more uh, fair uh, due diligence process, we were able to identify some really amazing entrepreneurs who, uh, who have now succeeded in getting follow-on capital as a result of our initial investments. I had a chance to uh, collaborate with incubation programs in Africa, and in most cases, they mentioned that funding is one of the key challenges they face. Uh, as far as I know, EN Venture was a nonprofit, so I would love to ask mm -hmm. you how challenging it was to actually make a sustainable venture over the years. Yeah, it's definitely challenging. I mean, we were a nonprofit because, um, well, for a few reasons, our main business was getting loans. And we didn't want to be commercial in the way we delivered loans because when once you become commercial, the loans turn predatory. So typical banks in, um, in Africa or my, even microfinance, they lend between 20 to 25% per annum, which, uh, sorry, uh, per month, sorry, per month. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like really, really high expensive loans that are, are pretty unaffordable for people. And so delivering it to 25% per annum or less is becomes more fair. And venture gave loans at 16% per annum. So we were considered very attractive capital. But to give loans at 16% per annum to populations that have no credit scores, no collateral, that were unsecured loans, um, you're taking a massive risk as a lender. And so for an adventure, it was really important to stay a nonprofit 
because our mission was about supporting um, uh, and bringing equality to uh, local entrepreneurs who don't get access to these opportunities to find um, successful enterprises that can scale versus, you know, having this um, this uh, expensive debt management program and which, you know, if we were more stringent could have been profitable, but is not really mission driven. So the um, sustainability is still a challenge. I mean, we have to take grants that's necessary for us to grow and to keep supporting our mission. Uh, but we, of course, baked in uh, sustainable lines of revenue, which, which include our loan program. It includes our, um, we have some consulting projects, too, that we do, which support other organizations trying to create last mile distribution programs. So we've done consulting for Mercy Corps and, and other groups in Uganda. So so these have brought revenue streams in for InVenture to make us more stable. Um, but uh, but we do need grants to, to keep growing. Over your journey with Ian Venture, what type of products and solutions and entrepreneurs you typically incubated and what, which story or a particular example is kind of your, the most uh, fascinating success story and you really loved this particular solution? Sure. So um, what InVenture does is we have a business in a box approach. So it's not like entrepreneurs come to us with an idea like many incubators. What we do is we say, here's a successful business model. Here is a list of vetted clean energy technologies that our team who has expertise in renewable energy know and can have certified with various in industries, um, solar products, cook stoves, and water filters, and fuel briquettes. Um, if you're interested in recent selling these in your communities, apply to the adventure program. And there you will get a loan to purchase these products upfront and mentorship and support for your businesses. So, um, so that's our model and it's a very replicable model. We basically just keep doing that over and over and over again with everyone who applies to our loans. Then we also have a growth loan. So the ones that are very successful with their businesses graduate and get more capital from InVenture. So we created a, a second tier loan um, based off of the credit histories they have with InVenture from their first loan. And so and a very successful example of that is um, there is this really amazing entrepreneur in, um, uh, in central Uganda who uh, has a... A renewable energy business that basically goes into the villages and puts on performance theater for people to buy and learn about solar. So they have men dress up as women and put on skits and performances. The whole villages come out and they see uh, this like play about solar and, and it's, it's really funny. It's really cute and they really get people's attention. And um, the entrepreneur behind um, this uh, solar nature, he's uh, very passionate about bringing electricity to people who don't have access. And so he already had a successful business. Um, and then with the InVenture growth loan, he was able to grow his business. Um, and they had like this van that has speakers um, as part of their marketing strategy, because um, digital marketing doesn't really work in this context, you got to go in person. And so um, that's been really awesome to see his journey and for us to support him 
with where he really needs help to grow. Uh, you mentioned that uh, with model is a pretty replicable. So I would love to ask you, did you try to uh, uh, jump uh, beyond Uganda to other African countries with your incubation program? So we didn't because Uganda is 85% without electricity. So you're talking about massive, massive need. Um, and so if we felt we could electrify all of Uganda with InVenture, then yes, we can move to another country. But what's the point in moving forward to another country if you can't solve the problem in your own home? So that's how we kind of looked at it. Um, we had already developed the relationships, the needs, the supports um, within Ugandan context. And lending is also very regulated. And um, in the Ugandan context, we had developed a program to meet the needs of the Ugandan um, government. But once you start another a country, you kind of have to start all over. You have to look at those lending requirements, see what you need, you know, and, and, and determine how to replicate in a very different cultural context. So um, that type of support is... Um, I would say still of interest to us, like we're not never, never going to replicate to another country, but I think right now we're really more focused on diving deeper in Uganda and, and getting more populations elect, um, with electricity due to supporting distributors. When I've studied a success story of this incubation program, it mentioned two bold uh, metrics. First. Uh, is the amount of uh, enterprises which were incubated and the amount of people who were uh, employed uh, by these enterprises. So I would love to ask you, based on your experience statistic, how is important was to provide people not just an uh, opportunity to provide uh, to build enterprises, but also hire people and provide people with employment, the opportunity to work in this country? Absolutely, super important. So. That's really the purpose of the growth loan is we want to create small, medium enterprises, not just small micro enterprises. All of our businesses start at the micro level in the beginning because the loan sizes are small. They're getting you know started. Um, pretty much every startup you could say is a micro enterprise until they get capital. So um, once they uh, start proving out that they can manage a micro enterprise, that's when we start building the blocks for them to um, grow. And um, so I call this a startup kind of energy ladder. You start small with small, small products, uh, small loans. And then as you grow your credit portfolio, you then can get access to bigger products, bigger loan sizes, um, and grow into a small medium enterprise. So, of course, um, hiring is a bigger part of that. And so um, with the enterprises that we've currently supported, um, about 100, uh, 520 people have gotten new jobs as a result. Um, and most of those have been for women, about 70%. Um, uh, so that's really exciting to see as well. Um, these are sales roles primarily um, because these are people who are basically, you know, managing the retail, retail or, uh, you know, managing sales teams or being part of the sales teams. Um, so those are the, the primary jobs being created, but that's what's so great about it is these aren't incredibly difficult jobs for people to fulfill. Um, they, it's very trainable, um, and uh, you can find talent locally. You don't have to worry about where you'll find people. So this is a 
engine that can really create a lot of jobs in the rural areas. Um, so we're really excited to see these businesses grow and create more jobs, um, especially for women. Uh, you achieved uh, acquisition of Ian Venture, and it's awesome. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, I would love to ask you, uh, is there something which developed countries uh, could uh, learn from this experience, experience in terms of uh, business models, maybe efficiency, maybe particular approach, how you deal with the several problems at the same time? I mean, building ventures, employment, maybe some problems we see in California today, something would you actually learn? Sure. Um, so uh, thank you uh, for that. Uh, I, um, I, I, I was really excited about the acquisition because uh, for a number of reasons. One, I, I mentioned that we were focused on Uganda, which meant we couldn't really be global, but we had a lot of global learning to offer. So um, through this organization, they were running similar accelerator programs in Asia. And now we have global South-South exchange on what works in Asia and what works in Uganda that we can uh, replicate with internally within the uh, New Energy Nexus, which is the organization that has now taken adventure. Um, another thing that's been really great for us is um, uh, New Energy Nexus has um, the ability to target and profile really high-profile donors in the way that InVenture has, has difficulty because we were a smaller team. We don't, you know, it's harder for InVenture to raise, you know, a million dollars from our foundation, uh, whereas it's easier for New Energy Nexus, which has a much larger team, bigger budget, U.S. headquarters. So, um, so that was another big success for that. Um, What's also useful for, for them is they had a lot of interest in replicating work in Africa, but they've never really had expertise in Africa. So through this acquisition, they gained the expertise of Inventure's team, which are all Ugandan or all renewable energy experts in, in East Africa. So that is a great team addition for New Energy Nexus. So I guess to further answer your question, finding these win-wins and partnerships is, is really important. Um, looking at how how does a merger acquisition really bring out the best, make both organizations better and stronger. There shouldn't be like a win-lose dynamic. And some people really don't believe that. Some people believe that somebody always loses. I don't think that's true. I think you can have win-win partnerships for sure. Um and I mean, there's going to be growing pains as a result, you know, that it's not, it's not, it doesn't happen overnight, just like psh, merging two separate organizations. But, you know, those are growing pains that will lead to greater success and outcomes. So um, I think that mergers and acquisitions should happen more often in the nonprofit space, honestly. A lot of nonprofits have very similar missions, who have very similar approaches, who are solving the same problems, who are competing from funding from the same donors. It's a lot more effective if, you know, nonprofit A is, like, trying to raise, like, $15,000 from one foundation and nonprofit B is trying to raise, like, $80,000 from another from another foundation to just join together and just, like, let's raise, like, 200000 together, you know? <laughs> like, that that's just so much better in terms of how nonprofits can be more effective. 
after acquisition, you became a board member of an organization that actually uh, made this acquisition. So while you're um, currently working on another venture, another startup, you're also still involved uh, in the energy market and you still have some knowledge. So I have a following question. Uh, currently, we have many technologies we, which try to uh, de um, uh, provide a democratization of this uh, clean energy, like uh, solar panels, uh, platforms which allow to invest in clean energy, like a trine, also even apps that would teach kids how to be efficient uh, about energy consumption. So um, I would love to ask you about your opinion, which technologies actually drive innovation in access, specifically in emerging regions? Mm, yeah, so yeah, it's uh, yeah, a great, uh, again, segue is joining the board has enabled me to kind of stay involved in these markets. So. Um, I'm really excited about trends focused on behavior change um, for energy, clean energy. So there's been a few startups that focus on leveraging behavior science and data to make predictions about energy usage, for example. And I think those types of technologies are really, really fascinating and seeing how they can drive energy kind of patterns and changes. Um, from a, and I think that can work in the emerging markets context, too. I've seen that most in um, in the U.S. Um, and uh, I think stability is still is a massive issue. Um, you know, a grid is not stable. Uh, mini grids aren't stable. Um, even solar home systems that are on rooftops aren't always stable. So, so technologies that help you know uh, um, com communicate instability more faster uh, through software deployments, things like this. Um, um, this is, uh, I think, something very interesting to see. There's one company called Shift Power Solutions that's working on this in Nigeria. So I think these are um, some really, really interesting trends to watch for. Uh, do you feel that after your involvement in African market, in Ugandan market uh, in particular, that um, you made some kind of a... Uh, uh, shift in interest in this topic in, and currently there are more people who would love to replicate your success maybe other incubation program or another entrepreneurs how do you feel uh, how is interest in clean energy is growing in Africa I think clean energy is growing rapidly um, a lot of people see this as a huge market huge need and um, a lot of companies are trying either succeeding or failing at it but you know that's the nature of entrepreneurship so uh, uh, I don't see that going away anytime soon people are going to need more energy uh, what I've seen really exciting is now I'm starting to see trends in mobility in emerging uh, markets um, it used to be that only like Southeast Asia had electric scooters for example and I've never seen something like this in Africa before but now you're starting to see startups who are looking up how do we provide electric vehicles um, or electric you know, motorcycles. And I think that's really awesome uh, to explore. There are startups in India looking at creating um, electric rickshaws, for example. So uh, anything that can kind of um, uh, add to this ener energy transition in emerging markets, um, I think is exciting. And there's tons of opportunities for entrepreneurs. Let's talk about another huge topic, uh, is the clean energy activism. Um, on one hand, I believe uh, it made a significant shift 
on how we uh, see a problem of clean energy, environment, uh, green sources of energy. At the same time, uh, I feel that we a bit lack uh, a presence of maybe scientists and mainstream uh, and some conferences who actually pitch about this problem. So um, every time when, for instance, we build some solutions and we rely uh, when, and we um, talk to our stakeholders, we always need some kind of a actual feeling of mainstream data information. But most of the time, we see uh, a bit. Um, exaggerating the amount of feelings, and uh, a lack of facts and information. Um, so I would love to ask you, do you feel that there is a, some kind of a gap in terms of uh, um, thought leaders as activists and thought leaders as a scientist who pitch and talk about uh, clean energy, green energy and uh, environmental problems? Definitely. Um, I think in the big. I don't, I don't want to say beginning days of climate change activism, but at least in the 90s and 2000s, it was really scientists who were the ones who were, who were kept talking about this, the ones who were researching and seeing the carbon levels and ice in Antarctica and, you know, creating maps and trying to warn the public. Um, so it was very science-driven, but it became very politicized, as you know, and um, and then I think the fact that it was scientist driven is actually problematic because they weren't marketers. They didn't know how to effectively market climate change to a media saturated culture. And how do you make these points, you know, sound uh, more actionable too? Because people don't want to read about doom and gloom. They want to read about hope as well. And so some of these messages were missing in the beginning days, which meant people kind of or at least I should say the media basically kind of stopped talking about it. Even today, you don't really see climate change come up in the news very much. Um, and that's why, you know, you know, you know uh, people like Greta Thunberg has been so amazing to the movement because, you know, she's not a scientist, but she has the ability to get the media to hear what she has to say and parrot what scientists are telling her. So having, you know, people who know how to, you know, be influencers who had... Um, uh, attract media personalities, be on television is so, so important. And scientists don't have the ability to do that very well, unfortunately. So, um, which is, is, I mean, it makes sense. Like you can't be good at everything. So, and scientists have other things to do. So, um, so I think that's been missing is like really awesome um, uh, people who can speak on behalf of the scientists. Um, the problem now though, is it's so, so politicized that you can't have neutral talking heads like if a a teenage girl can be attacked <laughs> and politicized who who can who can speak on on behalf of climate without being attacked so it is it is hard and um i think that, i still think that there's a lot of room and there's a lot of activists out there who are trying to to talk what say what the scientists are telling them and do it well but um uh, but I don't think anyone's really quite figured out how to stay in the news on a daily basis. Um, and uh, and I think this is something that still needs to change. Uh, let's talk about uh, epidemic and how uh, does it affect interest to uh, clean energy. Uh, currently, we see a significant decrease in price uh, on oil. So, uh, there is a, uh, so we see the situation then 
uh, so-called uh, dirty sources of uh, energy uh, decrease in price very quickly and this is some kind of a catalyst of change. Um, so I would like to ask you, how do you think, uh, is it uh, actual catalyst of a quick um, growth of a clean energy startups, new technologies, and what type of technologies you see uh, due to this uh, thing? Yeah, I think I mean, the COVID pa pa pandemic has been um, a uh, pretty big shock system uh, for many people. And, uh, and I think one of the clear civil linings of it is what it's done for the environment. Um, like people in uh, India have seen the Himalayas for the first time in 30 years, which is crazy <laughs> because of pollution has, has, has disappeared, uh, at least has decreased. So um, I think I'm hoping that people will remember what it's like to see a blue sky and mountains and breathe clean air and we'll want to keep that going um, and we'll become advocates and activists to keep that post-COVID. Um, that's one thing I really hope for. I don't know if that'll happen, but I hope it will. Um, <laughs> in terms of oil prices, I'm pretty excited about that, to be honest. I mean, obviously, it's painful economically, but I'm hoping it wakes people up to the fact that oil is not a stable energy source. It was never a stable energy source, and it never will be a stable energy source. And COVID just shows how that price fatality is so disruptive when you intertwine our entire systems of way of life to one energy source. You need diversification. You need to be able to rely on multiple sources so that when the next pandemic comes or the next disaster, which obviously there will be one, we won't be, um, our economy won't be tied to one fuel source. So um, I'm hoping that this will um, uh, create more opportunities for clean energy. I mean, solar is cheaper per kilowatt hour than fossil fuels, um, and that's without subsidies. So fossil fuels is a heavily subsidized industry. Renewables has had barely any subsidies. If you've subsidized renewables to the extent that you subsidize fossil fuels, you can actually have, um, you can actually achieve renewable energy um, for everyone by 2050. I believe that's possible, but you need that kind of, that kind of um, financial transformation, those subsidies, that government willpower, and that less dependence on, on oil. Uh, along with your interest in clean energy, you also uh, passionate advocate for women presence in technology diversity. Uh, Melinda Gates once mentioned what we need 100 years in order to achieve equality. So I would love to ask you how many years do we need to democratize access to clean energy to everyone in the world? I, I really do believe we could do it by 2050 if we can marshal all of that political will and financing for clean energy. Um, I think 2050 is totally doable. I think if if things stay as usual, if we still have you know governments that care more about fossil fuels than than people, which is the reality in many countries, um, then you will see a much longer transition. <laughs> so 
I hope, and this is my my kind of wish, I guess, for the next like this century, is that citizens will demand clean energy, so that governments will provide those uh, that transition, so that we can actually have you know cleaner skies, more jobs. Also, by the way, um, clean energy is projected to produce millions of jobs if we're on track. Um, and in just like uh, win wins, which is what I'm all about. So, <laughs> so uh, this is. Um, uh, so I, I think it's doable. It just we there there does need to be a bit more of a groundswell than there is currently, and less political division. And if you know if we can get people across the spectrum to see, you know, having clean air is not is not a. Uh, controversial thing i think everybody wants clean air people disagree on how to get clean air but clean air itself is not controversial just focusing on what unites us as um in, i think clean environment and you know clean air even if you don't believe in climate change which people still do believe that you can't say that you don't want clean air um so <laughs> so there are ways to bring about that momentum that um that I hope will happen post-COVID, and I hope will lead to our um, clean energy transition. Uh, one of the key goals of WISH Talks uh, is involvement of more young people to make amazing stuff. And I believe that the best thing about a circular economy topic, uh, clean energy, what is a type of um, uh, technology which you can uh, start with small. For instance, there are startups who build sustainable fashion, uh, some sustainable products, and it's more and less easier to create even without budgets and investment. So, um, for instance, if you would love to involve more young people to be interested in this topic, what kind of studies we need to learn, maybe chemistry, electrical engineering, what would you say to people who would love to be involved in this topic? I actually don't think you need to be like a scientist or a researcher or to have that, you know, title or that expertise anymore. I think you can literally study anything and be valuable to the climate movement. I talked about media before. If you're a journalist, if you are a communications major, you have a huge role to play in the climate movement. If you study um, engineering, obviously, there's a lot of things you can do as an engineer for the climate movement. If you um, study uh, um, what I studied, which was international studies, um, that's also relevant because you have a lot of political and international kind of negotiation work involved with climate. So I actually don't think that you have to study a specific thing. I think you have to think about what skills do you want to develop and bring to the climate movement and focus on those skills because I can guarantee that there is something for everyone to do. Um, professionally, not just like personally, but professionally in this space. Um, so I think that's what we need are people who are passionate, who are talented, who can bring their skills um, into, into creating this energy transition. Um, so, yeah, because when I was a student, I thought, oh man, I don't really want to go to Antarctica and measure ice. Like, that's not really what I want to do. That's all I have, that's what I have to do to be a climate scientist. No, there's other things in climate-related work that you can do. So I think, you know, we have to be careful not to, you know, tell students what to study. I think we need to tell students what what makes them 
excited in terms of what they want to do. Are you a builder? Do you want to create machines? Are you a researcher? Do you want to study problems? Do you, are you an interlocutor? Do you want to like negotiate? Like all those skills are, are really what's going to be important in, in um, changing the system we live in. And finally, uh, let's talk about your current work. As far as I know, you're working on a new platform. It involves some um, piece of data, machine learning, and some smart algorithm. So what are you doing currently, and what kind of people, partners you're looking for? Sure. Um, so and it's actually, actually uh, I should probably clarify, it's also part of Adventure, but um, we have a technology that we've developed um, to support the credit scoring of our entrepreneurs in the Adventure program. And so we are looking to uh, support the product development of this. And so we're still kind of in the testing and R&D phase. Um, but, uh, but eventually we hope that it will be a benefit to other lenders, um, especially in emerging markets. 